We're going to cover Exodus 11 and 12 this morning. I've asked Colt to come up here and read our scripture for us. So I'd invite you to stand with us as we give attention to the reading of God's Word. Uh, We are not going to read the entire section again this morning. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 12, specifically reading from verses 21 through 32. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to the clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through and strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so. And the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, and he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Our great and glorious God, we come to you this morning as your people a people bought by your own purposes through the blood of Jesus. We come to you and we look into your word this morning and we we, we long to know you more, we long to understand you as we come to this beautiful passage that has some, some, some weighty things here and yet there's also this glorious truth that we see in the shed blood of the Lamb. So I pray that you would you would take my labors and my words my meager offering, and use this to turn it into a feast for our souls this morning. Pray that we would, we would place ourselves under the authority of your word, under the authority of your truth. Let it shape us. Let, us, let it draw us to you, to see you as altogether glorious, to lift up the great and wonderful and beautiful name of Jesus. We ask you to do what only you can do in our hearts and in our lives, to change us Take away our hard hearts, give us a soft heart that is responsive to the work of your Spirit to transform us into the image of Jesus. We come to you, we cry out to you, and we ask you to show up and to do what you will in our lives. It's in the great and glorious name of Jesus that we ask. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Before we dive into this text, let me just ask you, Do you remember where you were 
when the events of September 11th, 2001 happened. Do you remember that day? Where you were, what was going on, what you were feeling? Some events are so shocking, are so impacting that they mark us, they embed in our minds. I, I was just a senior in high school at the time in Western Colorado, and yet these events that happened in New York City, I can still remember that day so clearly and the shock of that. And every year since then, every year after that fateful day, we remember that date. And it often carries the slogan, never forget, right? Never forget. And we are quickly approaching kind of a, a season of, of holidays from Halloween to Thanksgiving to, to Christmas to New Year's. Throughout our calendar year, we have this cycle of, of, of working through these holidays, these days that mark events of the past. And the purpose of that is, is for us to remember things that took place or, or people and what they accomplished. We're called to remember them. And today we see in this passage the establishment of this ancient Jewish ritual, this Jewish holiday that has been observed for thousands upon thousands of years, that of Passover. And last week we, we began this, this narrative section by seeing these nine plagues that were unleashed against Pharaoh and against Egypt. We highlighted how the plagues served to answer Pharaoh's kind of question of who is the Lord that I should obey his voice. And in the plagues, Yahweh is showing Pharaoh and Egypt that he alone is God, that he controls all things, and that he will bring about the deliverance of his people. And so today we see this climactic moment in this narrative, in this 10th plague and the subsequent exodus of Israel from their long slavery. So I want to walk through this, this, this long passage in just three movements. When we, we see in chapter 11 this warning of Passover, and then we see at the beginning of chapter 12 and, and, and throughout kind of the, the pattern of Passover, and then we'll conclude by, by seeing what is the fulfillment of Passover. So let's begin as we see in chapter 11, this warning of Passover. Last week, this ninth plague of darkness, as it was completed, Pharaoh yet again refused to let Israel go. And do you remember what he told Moses at that time? He said, hey, do not come back here. If you return here, I am going to kill you. He didn't, he didn't want to see them again. And so then when you begin reading chapter 11, at first it may strike you as odd. It seems as though uh, this is a, another conversation that's taking place. But if, if we understand it right, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 11 function more as a, as a parenthesis here, kind of describing what, what God had already told Moses and the people. And so when it picks up in, in verse 4, this is actually the, kind of the same scene. And we have to remember this goes all the way back into chapters 3 and 4, where God had told Israel what he was going to do. He, he had foreshadowed all of this. The end of chapter 3, in his I will statements, he said, I will bring you up. And even after Pharaoh shuts them down time and time again, that promise still stands. 
And in chapter 4, Moses had told Pharaoh that if he refused to let them go, then he would take his firstborn. And so, in verse 4 of chapter 11, Moses speaks to Pharaoh. This is actually, I believe, the same scene as the end of chapter 10. It's as if Moses and Aaron are, are leaving Pharaoh's presence, and as they are doing so, they turn back and say, hey, Pharaoh, one more thing. Remember what God told you at the beginning. That is going to happen now. Thus says the Lord, at about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. And this is the warning that Moses leaves with Pharaoh. But when we look at this passage, we, 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 are tend, we, we tend to ask, well, why the firstborn? Why is God going to do this? When, when you read a passage like this, it, it may strike you as very troubling, right? And I, I think it, it, it should do that. Like asking, how, how could this be? Is, is God really going to do this? To put to death the firstborn in every household. And, and I think a passage like this can really cause us to, to wrestle and to struggle and I don't want to just try to give some, some simple kind of answer that, 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 that kind of wipes that away. Like, like there's, a, there's a real tension within this whole passage of this. And I think it should weigh on us. I think it should, it should, it should have a heaviness that's there. But we also have to remember all that's taken place within this passage. In chapter 4, 23, God identified Israel as His firstborn. Israel was God's firstborn who he had called to be his own, the one through whom he was going to bring restoration and reconciliation in the world. And Egypt had kept them under brutal slavery for over 400 years. They had oppressed them, held them down to the point where they took their baby boys and began to cast them into the Nile to control them. And God had sent all these plagues to warn them his patience had been long-suffering towards the Egyptians. He warned them over and over, and yet Egypt refused. And here God is saying, enough. You will receive judgment. I will take away your hope for the future, which is what the firstborn did. So there's, there's this, this meaning attached to this. Those who you, you entrusted with, for your family power, your heritage, to carry on everything that you thought you had built here. God is going to take that away. He's going to confront their rebellion and this, this world that they have created apart from Him. And as we wrestle through this, we, we, we can even highlight that, that our modern kind of Western ideals of, of individual responsibility and, and, and freedom are, are sometimes completely at odds and incompatible with, with this ancient Near Eastern conceptions of, of corporate responsibility. And it's hard to get our head around that and, and to, to, to wrestle with, with how that works. But for them, this, this act would not have come as, as, as incredibly strange, but it would have, would have made sense. But at the end of the day, it is hard to get our head around what happens in this 10th plague. It's hard to, hard to accept this to see that it is a messy world that God enters into, that He's entering into a world of brokenness, and He's operating within that world. And it's easy to think, well, why didn't God just 
do it differently. And it's okay to question and to, to struggle and to wrestle with that, the, the tension that exists there. But we are still tr- called to trust that God is good and that He is still working out this plan of redemption that He promised. And when we encounter a, a passage like this, we would do well to remember the words of Paul in Romans when he speaks of God's sovereignty where he says, who, who are you, O oh man, to, to answer back to God? When God speaks to, to Job in, in his wrestling and struggle and says, hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Do you think you know better? We are tempted at times to place ourselves above and over God saying, God, you have to align with my conceptions of, of what, I, what I think should happen. But the question is, is, will you not just stop here at this? Sometimes a passage like this will, will, will cause us to say, I, I can't worship a God like this. But will you not just stop there, but will you, will you look to, to embrace and understand the whole story that flows from here, that this tragedy actually leads to a beautiful story of redemption? See how this tragedy is formed in a beautiful tapestry of restoration that is offered to all. But this warning is given, it's set forth, and then within there, there is this distinction that, again that is made between Egypt and the people of God. And I love how, how it includes this little line in there where it says that on the night that this happens, not even a dog is going to growl at the children of Israel. Just highlighting God's complete and utter protection of His people on this night. But we have to remember that God also always intended to offer His protection not just to Israel, but to any who would call on His name. And we'll see that as we get to the end of the story here. So Moses tells Pharaoh that on the night that this happens, that even his own servants are going to turn and they're, they're going to plead with Israel to leave. And then it tells us that Moses left in hot anger. And I wrestled with, with what's going on there? And I can't help but think that, that Moses leaves this just so frustrated, so angry at Pharaoh and the hardness of, of, of his heart. It's like this didn't have to happen. You are bringing this on yourself and he leaves in anger over what is about to happen. Moses is, is in turmoil because he knows this tenth plague is coming. So we have the warning of Passover, and then we see next the pattern of Passover that's set forth in chapter 12. It describes for us the greatest act of redemption in the Old Testament which ultimately becomes like the hinge point of Israel's history. So much of all the Old Testament points back to this. We could even say that this may be the hinge point of all of human history. This is something to which Israel would look back to for the rest of their existence. So in preparation for what's about to happen, God through Moses begins to give the nation of Israel some very peculiar commands some interesting instructions that he gives them. He says, first of all, that they're going to restart their year. Now, can you imagine just starting over? It's not January anymore, but, you know, now it's going to be March. I think we should do that with COVID, right? COVID is just mark the beginning of the year now moving, moving forward. 
except we'd have to have a few more months of 2020, which I don't think would be great either. So, but, but, but this event is so massive, it's so important that it's going gonna, it's gonna to restart their year. Every year it's going to start with this month in which this happens. It's a new beginning for the people of Israel. And then he tells them, he says, on the 10th day of this month, go out and find your best lamb, a male lamb, a year old, find them. He says, if, if, if you have too small of a family to, to eat a lamb, he says, you can, you can combine with another neighbor and, and do this together. So there's this communal event that's going to take place throughout the nation of Israel. But he specifies, it says, this lamb couldn't have any defects or spots, which would probably be our tendency, right, is just to go out and just, just find one, find the, you know, the, the least desirable one to, to kill and, and get rid of at this point. He says, no, 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 this has to be a very specific lamb, not just any lamb will do. Find the best, the perfect one. Search for it. Identify it. Find it. And then, set it aside. And in a few days later, you're going to kill it. You're going to cut its throat. And this is where it gets a little weird. It says then you, you're to collect that blood. Like it gets a little gross at this point, right? Like, like this isn't how most of us get our meat, right? Unless you're a hunter or have grown up on a farm and, and did some, some slaughtering of animals, like this imagery for us, is, it can be pretty foreign, pretty gross. I mean, I remember, um, I'm not much of a hunter, but my dad was, and I remember whole, you know, deer hanging, you know, in the garage and, you know, laying out on the table and, and cutting it up. And it was pretty gross. I mean, as a kid, it's kind of cool, but like, like there's, there's a whole process that, that's involved there. Like the death of, of the animal had to be seen. But they collect this blood, keep it around. And then they're to take that blood that they collected in a basin and they, they use it as paint. They paint the door frames of their house. And outside, put on the door frames on the side, the lintel or the, the top header post. Smear this blood on that house. Everybody, all the houses. Can you imagine that scene? You're seeing blood dripping down from the door frame of a house. Just how, how graphic that would be. How the Egyptians seeing that take place would have to, have to be like, what are they doing? So then, they're to take this, this lamb that they, had, that they had slain, and they are to cook it. They're to roast it. But they're not just having lamb. They can also have some other side dishes as well. It says you can have bitter herbs. This sounds like a great meal, right? Really five-star quality here. So this is, this is likely a reference to kind of something like dandelions or, or chicory, or even like it, it became kind of horseradish is, is oftentimes used to commemorate it now. These herbs that are, that are bitter, hard to eat, that, that affect you when, you when you eat them. Then you get some yummy bread, unleavened bread. Not the good stuff that's, that's risen and fluffy, but dry, flat, almost tasteless bread. You got to eat that as well. I can imagine that first, hearing these instructions, thinking, what is going on? What are we doing? 
with this? Why, why do we have to do this? And again, when it comes to this lamb, he specifies, hey, no butchering allowed. We're not cutting this up into lamb chops or a nice, nice crown rack of lamb. No, you, you cook this thing whole, even with its insides intact, it says. Sounds delicious. He says, don't, I found it fascinating as I read, like he specifies, do not eat any of it raw, like as if that was like maybe a temptation to eat the raw lamb. But he specifies and clarifies, don't eat it raw, but you have to cook it whole. And there's, there's something there, like, like this isn't just, just cut up in pieces, but this is, this is a whole lamb that we're going to look at, that we're going to see intact. Then he, and he continues and he says, that night you're supposed to eat all of the lamb, eat the entire thing. If, if anything's left over, you know, you, you, can't, you can't try to preserve it, you can't keep it around, he says, then you have to burn it. This is a strange meal. And if anything isn't strange enough there, also how you, how you approach this meal is going to be fully dressed, clothed, with your, with your coat on, with your bag ready to go, says with your belt on, the idea for them is the idea of like maybe pulling up like their, their garments so that they were ready for, for a, to, to travel, with their staff in their hand, like, like you are prepared to leave. And it says when you eat this, you're going to eat it in haste. So we could say this was like the first fast food, right? Come on, that was kind of funny, right? But, but, uh, but all these strange commands that they were asked to do. Can you imagine the, the first ones ever, ever doing this? How weird that had to feel. Like just, why? Why are we doing this? And just to make sure that they took this seriously, then Moses also told them, he said, the blood that you smear on your door will be a sign for you. When I see the blood over the door of your home, I will pass over you. You will not be struck down. You will be protected, but only if the blood is over your door. So it became serious. It's not just, this plague is not merely just going to go over Egypt, but over everyone. And then Moses tells them, that what they are doing, they're not fully going to understand, but every generation after is going is to look to these things as a memorial. This is the first installment of this Passover feast, which would be observed year after year following this night. It's going to be such a monumental event that's going to take place that they're going to reenact this for generations to come. Verses 15 to 20 then give us kind of this, this additional feast and festival, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that follows, a week-long festival that, that commemorates this after. And these rituals were to be observed every year on this day. It was to be something that would never, ever be forgotten. It was to be passed on from parents to their children, to their grandchildren, from one generation to the next. They were given these symbols to retell the story of God's deliverance. And for us, as, as, we, as we see that, as we look at that, like, like there's just a call for, for parents here, as, as we saw Justin and Lydia seek to, to, to commit to, to raising their son to, to know and love Jesus. 
Like there's a challenge here for us as parents that we have a responsibility to, to pass on the works of God to the next generation. For parents here, don't, don't pawn that off to the, the church or other ministry leaders or, or, or to a Christian school, but, but own that as your responsibility to, 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 to share and to speak of the works of God regularly in your home. As we engage in community, we do that with each other. As we remind each other of what God has done in our lives throughout history with His people, over and over throughout Scripture, you see this, this idea of, of remember, look back to, recognize. We as a community, we as families have an obligation to, to share and to, to repeat the works of God to each other, to our children, that we might not forget the works of God. He says at the end, he says, when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. When your kids begin to ask you, hey, why, why do we do that? Why do we take those little cups at church? Why, why do we dunk people in water? Each one of those questions is an opportunity to, to share and to, to point our children to the works of God. There's a call here to not neglect, to remember, and to pass that on to the next generation. This is the pattern of Passover and what that served for God's people for generations. But then we shift and we see next the fulfillment of Passover. We see, first of all, its historical fulfillment in verses 29 through 42. What we read earlier is this actually playing out. We're, we're told how this unfolds. At midnight, the destroyer this, this, this angel of death, this agent used by God, comes and sweeps through the land, and the firstborn in every house that was not marked by the blood died. A great cry goes up throughout all of Egypt. And you, you just can't help but think, like, didn't they see the other plagues? Didn't they, didn't they, did they not think that, that God was going to do this? that he was going to carry through on this. And this is a, a sobering text for us. It's one that should weigh on us as we read it. And when his son dies, and this cry goes up, we see that Pharaoh finally calls Moses and Aaron, and he says to them, I'm done. Get out of here. Take everything that you want just leave. The Egyptians also begin to urge the Israelites saying, we're all going to end up dead if this keeps going. And this is clearly something that we cannot control, that we cannot escape. So take whatever you want and get out of here. So Israel, it says, packed up their stuff, their, their kneading bowls. They took their unleavened bread. It says they headed out, but they, as they left, they also took whatever they wanted. It says that they plundered the Egyptians. This is not merely just kind of a, a, you know, a narrow escape, running away. This is a victorious defeat and a glorious marching out the front door of Egypt. It says that 600,000 men left Egypt that night, so potentially a number upwards of 2 million Hebrews who had been enslaved for 430 years, finally marched out free. 
God had provided what he had promised. He provided deliverance for his people. And in verse 42, it gives this kind of play on words where it says that that it was a night of watching by the Lord as the Lord watched over them that night. So this same night, every year that this is observed, it is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. As God watched over His people and saw them, now He calls them every year to, to look to Him and have a night to remember and recognize what God had done. And we see this, this beautiful deliverance of people, this terrible night brought this great deliverance. So, so that's how it was fulfilled historically in, in Israel's history. But we know that as we look at this story, within the scope of our, of our whole Bible, we know that there is also a greater theological fulfillment that we see. After this terrible and glorious night, this Passover meal was commemorated every year. Many of you maybe have participated in a, a Passover Seder, where, where, where in modern times they will still kind of observe this with a kind of a round plate with these different elements that are on it and we go around and, 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 and remember this. It can be a, 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 a good practice for, for different ones to, to observe. To remember what God did. Can you imagine that, that, that first year later, that point in the wilderness, you know, just doing this again for the first time and just, just remembering all the stories of just what that night was like and what happened, just how powerful that would be to then reenact it, and then the next year, then the next year, and to continue to do that, to mark just this amazing act of God, saying over and over to, to every Israelite, do not forget this. And throughout all the years of them doing that, all the elements of that meal were intended to remind them of something about that night. When they took and, and ate these bitter herbs, if you've ever had something like that, just, just biting bitter, like taking horseradish in your mouth, like it, like it, it elicits a response in you. Like you cringe. Like that, that, that physical act of doing that was, was to recall and remember just the bitterness and the, the oppression of the slavery that they endured that they longed to be freed from. As they took that bread, that unleavened bread, reminded them that they didn't have time to let it go, but, but God was going to act, and He was going to bring them out quickly in this moment. And then this lamb, when they would slay these lambs every year, it reminded them of God's protection that on that night, they, did, they didn't lose anyone, but God preserved them and brought them out as His children. But do you think that they ever really just, just wondered why, why this one had to die? Why this perfect lamb had to be found and why he had to die? Like, couldn't God have just, like, known the Israelites' houses and, and just not brought the plague on them? That's what He did with some of the other plagues, right? Right? So, so, so why the lamb? Like, why do we have to do this part of this? You see, embedded in this, in this imagery from the very beginning was this idea of substitution. That something had to take their place. 
Judgment fell on this lamb to protect and shield that house. And for us, it's easy. We, we can clearly see that this memorial was not just something that was, that was meant to look backwards and remember what God had done, but ultimately it was looking forwards to what God would do. And as much as the Israelites remembered this amazing social deliverance of their people, there was a greater redemption that was yet to be accomplished. That's why in our New Testament, when we see Jesus show up by the Jordan River, what is it that John the Baptist cries out? Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. As powerful of a symbol as, as that slain lamb was, these animals could not provide adequate covering for human sin. There had to be a true and a better lamb, a lamb like us, that could actually stand in our place. And this is what we see in the person of Jesus when God gives His only Son, His firstborn is given, is sacrificed to provide us freedom and protection. This is why the Passover story is so powerful. I believe that an overarching pattern and theme throughout all of the scriptures could be summarized in the phrase of salvation through judgment. We see these images and these glimpses all throughout our Bible. In the garden when Adam and Eve sin and their shame is revealed, an animal has to die for the first time to provide a covering for them. Through judgment, God provides a covering for them. In the flood, God's judgment is, sweeps down upon all of humanity who is totally turned away and run from God. But yet through the waters of the flood and the judgment that is there, in an ark, God provides deliverance for a few. He saves them through that judgment. And here in Exodus 12, when the destroyer sweeps through the land, this judgment falls on everyone, and it's only the blood of the slain lamb that provides a shielding and a protection for those who look to him. The idea is not, the idea of Passover is not the, really the idea of, of skipping over, but it's actually a passing over and a protection of them. It's not that he just, he just chose to, 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 the judgment there. The judgment fell on everybody, even Israel. If they didn't have the blood of the lamb, they would have lost their firstborn. But through that judgment, God provides salvation. And so all of these events shout to us both a warning and a hope. It shouts us this warning that hum humanity rightly sits under the coming justice of God against sin and human rebellion. All of the plagues are, are a sobering reminder of this. That yes, God, God's patience is long-suffering, but in the end, He cannot just let sin be. He cannot just ignore it. And he will bring justice, but 
He will provide a means of protection, a means of escape. He'll give us that substitute. So when the sinless one of Jesus hangs on the cross, all of these things are being fulfilled. And as he hung there, he doesn't hang just as an example to us, just as someone to look to and say, what a great man. For, the, for all the victory that his, his death did accomplish over sin and evil, at its core and foundation is this idea that he came and he was given as a substitute in our place. This is the good news of the gospel that is offered to all. And just as judgment fell on all, his protection is available to all who would look to him. In verse 38, there's this small phrase that could easily be overlooked, in which it says that when they left Egypt, a mixed multitude came out with them. Meaning that it wasn't just Jews who left. It wasn't merely your, your ethnic identity that, is, that established and granted to you the ability to, to find deliverance. But there were other groups, even potentially the Egyptians, who turn and recognize to God and join with Israel to go out and to worship Yahweh. God's offer of deliverance has always been open to any who would turn to Him and look to Him. So if you have ever doubted God's ability to save you, to bring deliverance to you, if you ever question whether you've, whether you've done it right, whether you have, you know, the, the right life, the right kind of faith, what it takes to, 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 to come and be saved, to find deliverance, this passage screams out hope for you. It screams out an assurance to us. I want to share with you just a, an illustration that I first heard from, from D.A. Carson, the theologian, years ago. And he presents this kind of hypothetical situation. He says, imagine this. On the night of the first Passover, two Jewish men having a conversation. Two neighbors. We'll give them great Jewish names. Mr. Jones and Mr. Brown. And they're having this conversation the night of the first Passover. And Mr. Jones says to Mr. Brown, man, I'm, I'm really nervous tonight. This is, this is pretty intense what's, what's happening. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of fearful tonight. What about you? How are you feeling? And Mr. Brown replies, well, I, I feel really good. Like, God told us what to do, right? Like, haven't you killed the lamb? Haven't you gathered the herbs that you need? Haven't you, haven't you put the door over the posts? And aren't you going to eat the meal together with your family? Stay inside? And Mr. Jones replies, well, of course, I'm not stupid. I'm, I'm not an idiot. Certainly, I've done that. I've, I've put the blood on. I've, I've done those things. I know, I know. But have you not seen what's gone down in Egypt over the past few weeks? I mean, the river turned to blood. Flies came out of nowhere. This, these storms that just wreaked havoc over everything. And, and tonight, this angel of death is sweeping through the land. Like, like that's terrifying. Like it's, it's fearful, the idea of losing my only son. And Mr. Jones says, bring it on. I trust Yahweh. His promises are sure. 
And so that night, at midnight, as the angel of death sweeps through the land, which one of those men lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. And the point is that, that the destroyer does not pass over, does, does, not, does not rescue based on the intensity or the clarity of the faith, but he passes over based on the grounds of the blood of the lamb that is on the doorpost of the house. And so often we, 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 can, we can struggle and, and, and worry about whether we can actually be saved with, with all the things that we have done, how often we fail to have, a, have the right kind of faith, to, to do what is right, how often we struggle with the same sin over and over again. We just wonder whether God can actually save us, whether He can actually do it. But the blood of the Lamb is the grounds for our assurance, not how we feel, how easily we, are, we, are, we, are, we succumb to our own feelings of emotion and struggle, how easily we are upturned. It is only by the finished work of Jesus, the blood that is on the doorposts of our house, that we can find the absolute assurance of deliverance. We have no other ground on which we can stand. There is nothing in us that can do it. It is not the clarity of our faith that saves you, but it is the object of our faith that saves us. And this beautiful picture given thousands of years ago to us still declares that to us today. I could think of no better way to conclude our, our service today than just entering into the Lord's Supper together. So I hope that as you came in, maybe you grabbed a, the communion elements on your way in. So I'd invite you to take those now. I'd invite Jack and the worship crew up just to, to play some music for us as, as we reflect on this together. If you think back on the night when Jesus, before he was hung on that cross, he observed this meal with his disciples. He came to the table with his disciples to remember this Passover. And during the course of that annual occurrence, it says that he took these elements, these elements that had been used throughout the years to point them back to these realities. And he took them and he said, as much as these things point back to a, a glorious day, right now I'm going to take them and tell you that they're going to, from here on out, point to me and what I'm going to accomplish tonight. And so as we come to God's table every week, we are reenacting this. You know, Jesus could have just told, told us, you know, uh, you know, about his death and told us about these images, but he left us with something tangible, something that we can experience together as we take the bread, as we take the wine, and we remember what God has done, that this cries out 
over us, our absolute assurance of deliverance. You know, when Jesus said, do this, he, he no longer said, do this to remember the exodus from Egypt. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we remember Jesus, we remember that he has brought us into a new and a greater exodus to free us from the dominion of sin and our slavery to death, to bring us into new life. So I invite you all, no matter where you're at today, whether, whether, you, whether you come today just discouraged with the se this season of life, whether you come in here every week and just, just wonder who this God even is, whether you come after a week of many failures, questioning whether God can actually love you, I'd invite all of you to take a moment now and just, just reflect on the blood of the lamb that was slain for us. Don't look to yourself, don't look to, to, to beat yourself up, to think that you can atone for anything that you've done. We look always to the blood of the lamb. So I invite you to do that now as, as, as Jack and the team just plays for us for a little bit. Let's take some time to reflect, to worship, then I'll come back and we'll take these elements together in declaration of God's goodness. Our Father, we thank you for sending your only son to take our place, to bear the punishment that we deserved so that we could brought, be brought out into free and full deliverance so that we can become your sons and daughters. Let us leave this place together with confident assurance, not in ourselves, not in, not in how we feel, but let us leave in confident assurance in the blood of the Lamb to cover us. We cry out in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.